Well, if you have your scriptures today, and I hope you do, would you take them and open to Ruth chapter 4? Ruth chapter 4. We're uh, completing our series that we've been in in the book of Ruth. And as we've moved through this book of Ruth, through the, the first three chapters and now in, in the fourth chapter today, we've, uh, we've began to see or we've, we've gained an understanding that God was working in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life and in the life of Boaz uh, to bring them from ruin to redemption. And, and we've seen, or at least we know, we can predict that it's not just Ruth's life and Naomi's life and Boaz's life in whom God is working in this story to move them from ruin to redemption. It's not just the individuals, but there's a sense in which it's their whole community, the, the village of Bethlehem. It, there's a sense in which he works through the events in the book of Ruth to bring uh, Israel into redemption. And, and certainly as Christians, as we look, you know, uh, thousands of years later, as we look at the big picture, we see that the book of Ruth was crucial for God's will bring in, bringing redemption to the whole world. Because it was through Ruth, it was through the story of Ruth that King David came on the scene. This last person mentioned in the book, actually the last word of the book of Ruth is David. And it's through the line of King David that Jesus Christ came into the world, the one who came to bring redemption to all who will receive it. So we certainly have a sense that, that uh, we've seen God's working not just in individuals' lives. God's work never has implications just for individual lives, but it always has bigger ripples and bigger implications. Now, what are the common uh, underlying denominators of everything that we've read in the book of Ruth, I, I think is these three words. God is working. God is working. And we've seen that through every chapter, every step of the way through the, the book of Ruth. We, we saw it in, in chapter one where Naomi talks about in her own words what God is doing. And it may be less than positive as we would gauge it. But nonetheless, Naomi says that God was working in her life in this way. She says, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away from Bethlehem full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now the narrator, the author of the book of Ruth, he, he tells us Naomi's perspective, but he doesn't want us to stay there. And, and as we close chapter one, we see the, the narrator saying to us, well, that's true. That was part of God's work. But notice when he brought empty Naomi back to Bethlehem. It's when the, the fields were full of barley. And that sets us up for what God is working in chapter two. We read chapter two and we understand through the, uh, you know, the Hebrew Id idioms that, that are used that it's God who directs Ruth to the exact field where she needs to be to provide for Naomi and, and for, for herself. To the exact field where she needs to be in order to move God's will forward. As we look at chapter 3, we see that God is working through Naomi and through Ruth and through Boaz as each of them lays it on the line. They risk everything in a very gospel-centered way so that they can bless and help and look out for the other person. 
We saw God working through that. And today in chapter four, we're also going to see that, that God is working. That actually brings me to the big idea for today's message. Uh, here's, the, here's the big idea, and it's on the note sheet if you've had a chance to open that. No matter how it may appear to you now, no matter what you think as you look at your circumstances, as you look at your life, as you look at your family, no matter how it may appear now, God is working. He's working in your family. He's working in your life. He's working in those circumstances. No matter what it may look like, God is working to accomplish his will. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to invite you to follow along as, as I read here from Ruth chapter 4. Follow along in your scripture. Follow along in your, on your note sheet. And we're going to see the circumstances in the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 4, where it may have appeared that God wasn't really all that involved, but where we find out he was. And we're going to see how those apply to our lives. Now, when we left off at the end of chapter 3, Boaz was promising Ruth that he was going to do everything he could so that he could become the, the guardian redeemer, so that he could step into that role of kinsman redeemer or goel uh, to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And so in chapter four, we see how that plays out. I'm going to start reading at the beginning of chapter four in verse one, if you'd like to follow along. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. So they did. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, the man said. You know, there's some intrigue in what's happening here at the beginning of chapter 4, especially to us, because this is kind of foreign to our culture. It's not the way we work. So there's, there's some intrigue, but realistically, to, to the people reading this, to the people experiencing this, are caught up in the midst of this, it's, it's, it's relatively insignificant. I mean, what's happening here in these verses that we just read is, is relatively mundane. But we, we're going to see, or we do see, that God is working in the mundane to advance his will. So again, this was fairly routine. What Boaz did is just the way it worked, and it happened quite frequently. The town gate was where important decisions like this were made. It's where um, you know, legal decisions were adjudicated. This is you know, drawing elders in isn't necessarily like the Supreme Court. It's not that official, or it's not that lofty. It's, it's just the way that they navigated these decisions that moved beyond the individual or the immediate family. So, so there's a sense in which when Boaz asks the guy to sit down and he gathers a few elders, nobody's going, oh, what's going to happen? It's just a kind of another day at the town gate, at the village gate. And, and so I think in some ways what's happening here is really like what happens in a lot of our days. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but my days are pretty mundane. And I, and I would guess that, that your days are similar. You know, we get up and, and we take care of hygiene and we feed ourselves and you know, maybe we go to work. 
Uh, maybe we educate our kids. Maybe we try to go to work while educating our kids and telling them to get off of our Zoom call or you know whatever that looks like in these days. Um, you know, we, we pay the bills, we buy the groceries, we mow the lawn, we, we try to raise our children to know Jesus and, and to have a relationship with him. We make decisions about things that are important to us, but realistically don't really seem to have a lot of impact on the future of the world. I mean, our lives are just kind of mundane. They're filled with the mundane, but that's okay. Because as we look at Scripture throughout, we see that it's in the mundane that God is perhaps working the most or the most surprisingly. We see that a lot of Scripture is filled with mundane people doing mundane things, but God breaks in and something significant happens. Actually, I think this is one of the Scriptures or one of the truths of Scripture that we tend to you know, disregard, if not actively, at least passively, we, we, we forget this truth too easy, that it's in the insignificant that God does some of his most significant work. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of who you were, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You see, a lot of what's happening in the opening chapter or the opening verses of chapter 4 here is just kind of mundane. And a lot of what happens in our lives is mundane too, but don't lose sight of the fact that God works in the midst of the mundane to do extraordinary things. He works in the insignificant to work significant things. Not only is God working the mundane to accomplish his will, but he also works in the midst of missed opportunities. Let's keep reading in chapter four. I'm going to pick up at verse five. Ruth chapter four, verse five. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now again, if I don't miss my guess, you could look back at your life like I can, and you could probably list a number of missed opportunities that if you had to do again, you would do differently. I wonder how have those missed opportunities impacted or directed your life since you moved in a different direction from those opportunities? 
Well, we've spent about eight verses now in, in Ruth chapter four, reading about this, this guardian redeemer, this Goel, who was closer to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz. And, and, and by now, certainly we've learned a few things about him. For example, look at whoever's watching this live stream with you and, and tell them, what is his name? What's the name of this kinsman redeemer? Not Boaz, the other one. You don't know? <laughs> we don't know. The narrator, the scripture writer of, of Ruth never gives us his name. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's kind of fascinating. In the Hebrew, his name is literally Mr. So-and-so. His name is not mentioned. There's no proper name given. The, the author just refers to him as, you know, so-and-so, you know, that person. That's curious. What's up with that? I think probably the narrator, the author of Ruth was was telling us a couple of important things that we need to know in order to understand how God works. First of all, I think the, the author is drawing our attention to the fact that God wants to work with his children to accomplish his will, but he won't force us. God wants to work with us. He wants to work in us and through us to accomplish his will, but he's not going to force us. He's not going to drag us down the road. He's not going to push us. He'll invite us, and then we make a decision. And when we make a decision, there are consequences, both positive and negative, for the decisions we make. Now, as we look at Mr. So-and-so here, we see that he's not willing to do his part. He's not willing to do what their law asked of him in order to redeem his family. He's not able to, to do what Boaz suggests he could do. And so there's consequences. Here's how one theologian said it. It is a just consequence upon him, upon Mr. So-and-so, that he who would not preserve his brother's name might lose his own and lie buried in the grave of perpetual oblivion. So I think the narrator is trying to tell us, hey, look, God invites us into his will, and we have a decision whether we'll partner with him or not. If we do and if we don't, there's consequences. And in the case of this man, his decision not to join with God, one of the consequences was his name kind of dropped from history and nobody knows who he was. But I think there's another point that the narrator's making here, and that's that even when God's people miss the opportunities to partner with God, even when we deny our responsibilities or, or when we mistreat one another or when we just kind of sidestep God's will, God's will still moves forward. God is going to find a way to accomplish what he has willed to happen. He would prefer that we partner with him when he gives us the invitation. But if we choose not to, for whatever reason, his will is still going to move forward. And we see that. We see that as we continue through Ruth chapter 4. But, but I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that, that Mr. So-and-so is some kind of bad guy. I'm not saying that we won't see him in heaven. Um, the author doesn't demonize him, and so I'm not going to. I mean, realistically, he had a tough decision, and he responded in a way that was probably culturally acceptable. Obviously, Boaz gave him the opportunity to say no, and he did the best that he could with an extremely difficult choice. Thankfully, though, 
Boaz didn't respond the same way. Let's see what Boaz did. Back in chapter 4, I'm going to start reading at verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. You know, every family has a certain tolerance for risk. Some families value risk. You know, some Christian families tie risk to faith, and, and so it's, it's a family virtue, a family trait. The riskier we are, the, the greater our faith, and the more we stand to accomplish. And, and some families take a more conservative approach to risk, and, and they want to be wise stewards, and they want to guard carefully what's been entrusted to them. So they limit the risk as much as possible, um, you know, as their expression of what it means to be a wise steward. Well, as we look at Boaz, we have this sense that he had a high tolerance for risk. You may remember last week in chapter 3, we talked about what a risky move it was or what a big ask, a big question it was for Ruth to approach Boaz to fulfill the guardian redeemer responsibilities and, and to engage in a leveret marriage with her. You see, by agreeing to marry Ruth, Boaz is saying, my desire, my goal is to help Ruth conceive a son. And that son won't be my son. He won't carry on my name. He'll, in this case, carry on Elimelech's name or Malon's name. He'll be, he'll be a son in Elimelech's family. And then by agreeing to be the guardian redeemer to buy Elimelech's or Malon's land, Boaz is saying, I'll put out incredible sums of money to redeem this land to bring it up to the point where it's effectively bearing crops. And then when the time comes, that son that I've conceived for another man's name will receive that land as an as his inheritance. And so Boaz is risking a lot. He's going to put out a lot of money. And chances are he won't receive a full in return on that investment because that will be then given to someone who is not his own inheritance. Well, what's interesting here is that even though that's a risky move, one that Boaz was willing to take, we see that God is still working in it to advance his will. As a matter of fact, God, God we see no other way that he would have advanced his will if Boaz wasn't willing to take the risk, or at least he wouldn't have done it in this way, but his will would have moved forward. Earlier this week, I was in a conversation with some other pastors when one of the, the other pastors in the conversation made an interesting statement. He was talking about his extended family and kind of describing some of the dynamics there. And, you know, he said, we have, we have pastors in, in my extended family, uh, and then we have others who aren't pastors or part of a pastor family. Here's what he said. You were in my extended family, he said, you were either part of a pastor's family or you are living in some very colorful sin. So like these two ends of the spectrum, you're either you know, supposedly living a righteous life because you're part of a pastor's family, or you're, um, you're not. You're living in very colorful sin. And when he said that, I thought, you know what? That really 
actually, there's a lot of hope for your extended family in that. And let me show you why I was thinking that. Again, we're going to go back to Ruth chapter 4. I'm going to read starting in verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Epaphrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. I wonder, have you heard of or have you seen any of this new series that's available? I would say on TV, but it's not actually on TV. The series is called The Chosen. And right now it's playing uh, on YouTube, for example, or you can download like VidAngel and you can play it through their app. There's other apps you can play it on. Um, but it, the series is called The Chosen. It's a, it's a series through the life of Jesus. It's, it's interesting. My family and I are enjoying it. And actually earlier this week, we watched the second episode. Now at the beginning of episode two, they're showing uh, a family celebrating the Shabbat or the Sabbath dinner. And, and there's this, this blessing that's part of the Sabbath dinner. The, the father blesses his daughters with these words. This is, this is ritual. This is part of, of Jewish Sabbath celebration. He says, may the Lord make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. This is the blessing that they repeat every Sabbath, a father over his daughters. May the Lord make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. The blessing refers back to the way that God used these women to, you know, to start his chosen people, to, to found the nation of Israel. Well, it's interesting here in, in Ruth 4, we see a variation of that blessing. Uh, we see specifically the people at the, the gate using a blessing that applies specifically to the, the village of Bethlehem or the tribe of Judah. Let, let, me, let me show you what I'm talking about. They said specifically, they mentioned Rachel and Leah. Do you remember who they were? Well, Rachel and Leah were sisters, and a man named Jacob was smitten with Rachel. He fell in love with Rachel. We would say head over heels. He wanted to marry her. He was so desperate to marry Rachel that he agreed with Rachel's dad that he would work for seven years as, we might say, a ranch hand or a farm hand in order to have the right to marry Rachel. So they struck the agreement, and, uh, and Jacob heads to his wedding day. Well, Jacob discovers on morning one of his marriage that Rachel's dad had done a switcheroo and Jacob had actually married Leah. Well, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, so he went back to Rachel's dad and agreed to work another seven years to have the right to marry Rachel. And so now Jacob's married to both Leah and Rachel. And can you imagine the family dysfunction that that produced? Oh man, the stories are crazy. As we watch this family, these family dynamics unfold, we, we begin to see that Rachel is infertile. She can't conceive and give birth to children. And that's a big deal in their culture. One of the wife's primary responsibilities was to produce male offspring. That's how the family name kept moving. And, and Rachel was unable to do that until finally, it says this in Genesis 30, 22. 
Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. And so as the people at the village gate bless Ruth, they couldn't have given a more appropriate blessing. Here's Ruth who, since being married to Malon back in Moab, has struggled with infertility. She wasn't able to give birth to a son when she was married to Malon. As far as everyone knows, she is completely infertile. Her womb is closed, they would say. Unless God hears her prayers, unless God remembers Ruth, there's no hope for this marriage to Boaz. It's not going to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. Now Leah, going back to Jacob and Rachel and Leah, Leah, on the other hand, was very fertile. She gave Jacob seven children, six sons and one daughter. One of those six sons was named Judah. Now as Judah grew up and became a man, he had three sons. Now Judah's oldest son, his name was Ur, he married a Canaanite, a non-Jewish woman whose name was Tamar. Unfortunately, before Ur and Tamar could conceive, Ur was killed. And, and here's where we find out what uh, Tamar and Ruth have in common, why the people at the gate would have the ability or the desire to, to bless Ruth in Tamar's name. You see, both Ruth and Tamar were non-Jewish women who married Jewish men. Tamar married Judah's oldest son, Ur. Ruth married Elimelech's son, Malon. So they had that in common. But that's not all that Ruth and Tamar had in common. Both women lost their first husband before they could conceive. Ur died and Malon died. Both women entered into a leveret marriage after their first husband died in order to conceive an offspring for their first husband. So Tamar married Ur's youngest brother, Judah's second son. His name was Onan. And Ruth married Boaz, as we see here in Ruth chapter 4. This is where their stories get a little bit different, though, uh, because after Tamar married Onan, Onan wasn't willing to do his part to fulfill his leverant responsibility to his older brother's name. And so because he wasn't willing to do that, Scripture says that God struck Onan dead. And so now Tamar is twice widowed. Now Judah, you may remember, had a third son, but he kind of looked at Tamar and came to the conclusion that maybe she was a bit of a black widow or, or maybe there was something going on there. And so he refused to allow his third son to marry Tamar and, and to fulfill the levirate responsibilities to his oldest son, Ur. Well, that in their culture was wrong. That was a sin. God didn't approve of that. Another thing that both Ruth and Tamar had in common was that they both had the responsibility to get the men in their family to do what pleased God. We've seen how Ruth did that as we've walked through this book, how she challenged Boaz to live by the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Uh, but when it comes to Tamar, she was a little more, we might say, underhanded. Um, actually, if we're to be honest, what we would probably say is that what Tamar did was disgusting and downright sinful. But in the end, Judah judged Tamar's actions as righteous, or at least as more righteous than his. And Tamar gave birth to Perez. 
Perez, from whom perhaps everyone in Bethlehem at the time of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz had descended. So I think what we see here in this blessing in Ruth 4 is that even in the midst of dysfunction and family dynamics that are all messed up, even in the midst of the worst sin that a family can endure, God's will still moves forward. God is always working to accomplish his will, even in the midst of dysfunction and sin. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the story tells us that God is also working in the miraculous and in the extraordinary. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 13 of Ruth 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now that's the miraculous, right? Remember, Ruth had been plagued for maybe a decade with infertility. There was, they didn't think there was any way she could give birth, and yet here she is, pregnant. That's a miracle. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. That's interesting what the the women said about Ruth. They said, your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. You know, that's a Hebrew way of saying that Ruth is the best thing that could have happened to Naomi. She's an extraordinary blessing, a, a blessing the caliber that very few families, relatively speaking, ever receive from God. Ruth is, uh, is an absolutely incredible. She's extraordinary. And so we would expect that even in the midst of uh, miracles and and extraordinary blessings, clearly God is working to accomplish his will. But that's not the underlying story of the book of Ruth. That's a happy ending, but it's not what this story has been all about. I want you to notice how the book of Ruth ends. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So we see the book of Ruth end in the opposite way that it began. You remember at the beginning of the book, Naomi lost everything, her husband, her two sons. She was empty. But here at the end of the book, her life is full. Not only does she now have a daughter-in-law who is better to her than seven sons, but she actually has a son. Now, we would say grandson, but notice what Scripture says. The women of Bethlehem said, Naomi has a son. And what do we know about that son? Well, his name was Obed, and he went on to become the grandfather of the greatest king that Israel ever had. So imagine that. 
This story started with a nobody, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their sons, Kilion and Malon. And it ends with Naomi, the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. How does someone earn the stature to raise the grandfather of the greatest king a nation has ever known? I would suggest to you that it's because of the hardship and suffering that Naomi faced that God had her raise Obed, the grandfather of the king. You know, there's something about hardship and about suffering that refines us. When I deal with hardship and pain and suffering, when the, when the, the path of this life becomes difficult for me to walk, it forces me, it forces me to look at myself and to understand that I'm not as great as I thought I was. Suffering in life, hardship in life forces me to, to figure out if I'm going to be a person of faith in something greater than me and someone greater than me, or if I'm just going to move through life with faith in myself and what I can accomplish and what I can do. Hardship um, requires me, if I am a person of faith, to discover what my faith is built on. Is it built on a small g God that will allow me to walk through life thinking that I'm as good as it gets, that, that you know, life and the world revolves around me, that I don't have to change, that everyone has to adapt to me? Or is my faith built on the God of the universe who loves me intensely and who loves me enough to allow pain and hardship and suffering to come into my life because that's the only way that I can realize his loving kindness. That's the only way that I can learn the important lessons so that I have no other option but to turn to him and to trust him and to follow him and to look for his loving kindness in the midst of all of it. You know, if you think about it, you can hear Naomi's faith in some of King David's greatest works. I mean, how many Psalms in the book of Psalms sound something like what Naomi said in chapter 1? The, the Lord has afflicted me. Almighty has turned against me. How many times does David say something like that in the book of Psalms? Where did David learn to be that honest with God? I would suggest it was a family trait that passed down through Obed and through Jesse and to King David. Because this was the kind of faith that God developed in Naomi so that she could pass it on and, and, and then Obed could pass it on to Jesse and Jesse to David. And I believe this is one of the key underlying messages in the book of Ruth. Even when it does not look like it, God is working in your suffering to advance his will. Even when it doesn't feel like it, God is working in your hardship, in your pain to advance his will. But you got to understand that God's will isn't ultimately about your comfort. It's not ultimately about making your life easy. God's will is about your redemption. And it's about working with you, working in you and through you to offer his redemption to those around you. This is what God desires to do. 
He desires to redeem you, to to bring you from foreigner to child. To bring you from outcast to adopted son or daughter. And then he desires to work with you to make that redemption available to others also. So as we conclude our study on Ruth today, let me ask us all three questions that uh, I think are appropriate to ask after studying the book of Ruth. First of all, have I allowed God to redeem my life or am I walking my own path? And if you're watching today and you say, I don't know what that means, I guess the, the question is, are you walking through life the way you want to? Or have you given your life to following Jesus Christ? And are you striving to live life his way? This is God's first and foremost will for you, that he could redeem your life, that he could make you his child, that he could sanctify you, he could grow you in righteousness and holiness, and that then he could work through you to extend the same to others. And it all starts with you allowing him to redeem your life. Have you done that? Like Ruth did on that road back from Moab to Bethlehem, have you come to the place where you say, I'm done with the old, I'm turning towards the new. God's will for my life is what matters most now. Have you taken that step? Have you crossed that line? Is that the way that you're living, allowing God to redeem your life instead of walking your own path? The second question I want to ask is, am I trusting God to redeem my suffering? You see, it's one thing for God to redeem your life and then then to grit your teeth and bear through the pain and hardship. But it's another thing like Naomi to open your eyes and to to look for God's loving kindness in the midst of your pain and suffering. It's one thing to look through your suffering and past your suffering and look to the needs of others around you, to allow God's suffering to, uh, to form you and shape you and ingratiate you in a way that blesses others. Are you allowing God to redeem your suffering? Or are you still gritting your teeth and white knuckling saying, this isn't fair. This shouldn't happen to me. I don't deserve this. Maybe you don't. But allow God to redeem it and do what he wants to through it. And then the third question I want to ask as we close today, am I partnering with God to help others taste his redemption? Am I partnering with God? Am I doing what God asked me to do? Am I going where God wants me to go? Am I willing to set my plans to the side? Am I willing to set my preferences and my desires over here so that I can follow where God wants to take me? Or am I being like Mr. So-and-so and and not willing to count the cost? Not willing to, to partner with God in his redeeming work? Beloved, hear me out. God has not abandoned you. I don't know what all of your family dynamics are. I don't know what decisions from your past you're carrying around and you're dealing with. But understand this. Ruth 4 reminds us that regardless of the circumstances, God is still working to accomplish his will. There's no missed opportunity. There's no risk too great or too small. There's no family dysfunction or or family sin. You can't live in, in in a sin too colorful that God can't redeem it and work through it to accomplish his will. Will you let him do that? Are you letting him do it? Because if you do, when you do, your story begins to look a lot like Naomi's. And we never can predict what God's going to do with a life like that. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you because we know that uh, you're a gracious God. 
slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And Father, we see it all over the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We see that you were working even when it seemed like you weren't, even when by human standards we would say, no, 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 that's not. God doesn't get involved in those situations and that you did. You were involved. So Father, we can say with confidence that you're involved in our life too. When it's messy and unfortunate and hard and painful, we could be confident that you're involved too. Thank you, Father, for that. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are watching, perhaps for those who I don't know and maybe aren't part of the family of God. Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to each of us where we're at and to help us know how we can be part of your will, your story of redemption. Father, thank you for your work to move us from ruin to redemption and to work through us to invite others into that same movement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's bless one another. May you know that God is working at all times in your life. May you choose to partner with God in what he's doing in you and through you. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you his peace. And also to you. Amen. You are loved. Live in God's grace.